We appreciate so much those who serve all the time to help provide our worship services. We appreciate those who lead prayers. Kevin, that was a beautiful job uh, leading us through communion and those who serve on communion and our prayers and uh, all the other parts and leading our singing. And uh, it's wonderful to have Brother Wayne step in and we appreciate you stepping in this morning. Uh, in a time of need, and he still got it, doesn't he? <laughs> it's good to hear you again. Thank you for, for leading us in worship this morning. Well, Happy New Year. I hope that you uh, got a little bit of sleep last night. Who stayed up past midnight to see the new year come in? And you're here this morning. You're starting the year off right. <laughs> it's wonderful to be here together this morning. We appreciate your presence those of you who are visiting with us, we, we want you to know you're our special guest. We hope that you'll come back at any opportunity. Let us know if we can serve you at any time. We're also very thankful to have those with us who join us online each and every week, and we're also always here for you as well. You ever wondered, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through what I'm going through. Why has tragedy struck my house? Why am I the one struggling with what I'm struggling with? Why is th are things so difficult for me? When it seems like they're not for other people and it seems like you're the one struggling, you're the one going through trials, you're the one suffering. You ever felt that way? I think probably all of us have had our time when we've felt, why me? And we've wondered, if there is a God, then, then where is He? And why is He allowing this to happen to me? And maybe you knew in your mind, cognitively, you knew the answer, but in your feelings, you just wondered, why God? And you cried out to Him. We've all been there where we're tested to put our trust in God. Are we going to trust in God? Are we going to put our faith in God? And, and what's going to happen to our faith as we go through this trial, this difficulty, this challenge? We've been there. And as we begin this series on James, the book of James, we're looking at the idea, the theme of do your faith because James is practical. James gets right to it and he's full of action. James is one of those action-packed movies that starts off with action and doesn't stop until the movie's over. He's full of action and he's all about doing our faith, living it out. That faith is an action. That's what he wants to communicate to us through his letter. The James who wrote the letter James in the Bible, you may not know, was the brother of Jesus. He was one of his brothers. There were uh, two other apostles who were in the list in the Gospels of uh, apostles among, among the twelve. But in Galatians 1, 19, Paul calls James the brother of Jesus an apostle. And James didn't always believe 
in Jesus. Did you know that? His own brother, his own brothers, and even his mom, we see, struggled at times to believe in the fullness of who he was. And John tells us in John 7, 5, that even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, we also see in 1 Corinthians 15, when Jesus has already uh, been crucified and buried, and he's been raised from the dead by the power of God, and then he goes and he visits, he shows himself to, he visits the 12 apostles and hundreds of other people. And there in verse number 7, uh, Paul writes that he went and saw James. He met with James. He visited his brother James. He went to see his brother even before, because Paul says, and lastly, he came to see me, the least of the apostles. But as far as we know, as far as the biblical record tells us, that, that in John 7, James, his own brother, didn't believe in him. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, after he's been raised from the dead, he goes to see his brother James. And, and it's believed that at that point, he believes that his brother is the Christ, the Son of God. That he's seen him raised from the dead, that maybe all that he had seen and all that he had heard was true about my brother. And he is the Savior of the world. We can believe that because right after that, right after the resurrection, with which Acts chapter 1 takes us into, we find James assembled with the apostles, the twelve and others, and he even tells us, Acts even tells us in, in chapter 1, that, that uh, James and the other brothers of Jesus and Jesus' mother, Mary, they're assembled in the upper room as they traveled to Jerusalem in preparation for the day of Pentecost. This is right before the Holy Spirit comes, and I had not noticed that before. I always thought of the 12 apostles being the ones that were there, and they're there praying for, for about 10 days before Pentecost. They're praying fervently every day, and in this large upper room in the house they were staying in, Jesus' mother is there. And his brothers are there with them. And they're all praying. And so that lets us know that, that they believe now, that they're convinced now, that they're there because they know Jesus is the Christ. And verse 14 is where we see them with the group. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see Paul, they've likely gone down to the temple because they have access to communicate to thousands of people. And the Holy Spirit shows up as was prophesied as we talked about a couple of weeks ago and, 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 and begins to allow them to communicate and all the languages represented there. And everybody hears uh, this gospel message spoken in, spoken in their own language. And thousands obey the gospel. And this is the beginning of the church of our Lord as we know it today. This is, this is that first gospel message after Jesus has ascended into heaven on that day of Pentecost. And James is there. And then when we follow him in the book of Acts, we find that, that James was an influential leader in the church in Jerusalem. Did you know that? James, the brother of Jesus who wrote the letter of James, was influential in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 8, do you remember what happened 
where Stephen was arrested. Deacon Stephen, he had, he had just been appointed deacon in Acts chapter 6. And the poor deacon's just trying to serve and do his job. And he finds himself uh, at the hands of an angry mob. And, and, and he takes that opportunity to proclaim again the gospel of Jesus Christ, to say Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And they're enraged, and what do they do? They stone him to death. And he does like Jesus did. And he looks up and he says, Father, forgive them. And who's there holding everybody's cloaks while they stone Deacon Stephen? Saul, who would become Paul. James is already a believer, already a Christian. And Saul isn't there yet. And so we see that in Acts chapter 8. And then what happened after Stephen was murdered? We see in Acts chapter 8 that the the church was scattered. That's what chapter 8 begins with. The the stoning happens in chapter 7. Saul is standing there and the church scatters because of persecution. All these people there in Jerusalem and people have to get out of town quick. Because Saul has letters, he has permission, he has legal authorization to go into your house and take you away and throw you in jail. He has has the, the, the legal right to do that. Christians are persecuted at this time. And they scatter all over for their own lives. Leave their house, grab what they can, and get out of town. And then in Acts chapter 15, we find the, what we call the Jerusalem Council, where the apostles come together to make some very important decisions about Gentile Christians and the Judaizers trying to make them follow uh, Jewish uh, customs that they understand no longer applies. And so they go and guess who is there mediating and, and giving his wisdom and, and spiritual counsel? It's James, the brother of Jesus. And they listen to him and follow his guidance. And it's believed that he likely wrote the letter that they then took back and communicated to the church elsewhere. So we see then this same James. Look at how he opened his letter in James chapter 1, verse 1. He's already accomplished all of this. He's the brother of Jesus. And what does he write? He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't name his claim to fame and, and what like so many would have. And I, the brother of the Savior. Yes, me, the one from the Jerusalem council. You know, he didn't say any of that. He says, a servant of God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He, he was just honored and humbled to be able to say, I'm a servant of my brother and my Savior, Jesus, and my God. And then he writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And that's believed that he's writing to Jewish Christians. Which Jewish Christians? The ones who had been scattered because of persecution. Because it's believed that James wrote this letter right before Acts 15 which means the the Jewish Christians from Acts chapter 2 had already scattered like we see in Acts chapter 8. And and James's letter had been distributed and people had heard it and he had gotten this message that he wants to tell these Christians to hold on to their faith 
When their faith is under trial, when their faith is under pressure, he's telling them at the beginning of the letter to hold on to their faith. Some think he wrote it right after this, uh, the Acts 15, but he wrote it around that time. I think that's amazing to see the connection. In fact, uh, James is likely the first letter in the New Testament to have been written. Some will date Galatians. Galatians was likely second. And look at what he says in verse number 2. Look at James chapter 1 and verse number 2. We're just looking at the first 12 verses this morning. Right in the middle of their persecution, they've scattered. Right in the middle of everything they're going through, these Jewish Christians, new Christians. What does he say to them? He says, count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James, do you know what you're saying? Do you know who you're talking to? How could you write, count it all joy, when you face trials of various kinds? How could you say those words to these people? And sometimes we feel that way. We see what we're going through. And, it's, and, and someone wants to encourage us. And I know you, there's a sensitivity there. But, but James is saying to us, count it all joy when you go through trials and persecution and suffering. Can you imagine being one of those Christians? You, you, you had to run by your house and grab what you could and get on the donkey and get out of town. And you don't know if you'll ever be able to go back to your home again. And you're somewhere where you don't know. You don't know that place. You don't know those people. You don't know the customs there. And that's not your home. And it's all because you say you believe Jesus is the Savior. And that caused this kind of persecution. And you knew Stephen, and you heard what they did to him. They stoned him to death. And you're thinking, James, what are you saying? And that's what James writes to them. Why would he say, count it all joy? Why would he say that? Well, if we finish verses 3 and 4, we see why he says that. Because he's saying, for you know, he's reminding them, you know that the, the testing of your faith, see, that's those trials, it produces steadfastness. Your translation may say endurance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. See, James says that these trials that you go through are tests of your faith. So why do you count it all joy when you go through trials, when you go through tests, when your faith is, is tested, when you're pressured to give up on God? It's because when you get to the other side of the test, when you get to the other side of the suffering, when you make it through the storm, it produces steadfastness or endurance in your life, in your faith. So how do you think about how you develop endurance in, in anything, but think about something maybe more extreme like, like track or cross country or basketball, running up and down the court nonstop, or sports like that, or, or, or swimming. Uh, Matt, I think uh, somebody last week gave the illustration of, of uh, a swimmer and all the training that they do. How do you build up the endurance 
to make it through a game or a competition in one of those sports or in something like that. You do it through practice, right? You do it through, you can't run that, that, that mile now, but you can run 100 feet and not pass out. And so you run that 100 feet and you do that again. And then, and then next week, now you can run 105 feet before you fall over. And you keep doing it over and over and over again. And now you're running five miles. Now you're running marathons. I don't know how, how long marathons are. They must be long. They've got to be 100 miles or something, right? I can't imagine. Joyce has run marathons. I can't imagine that. But how do you, you don't just say, I'm going to run a marathon today. You've got to build up to that. You've got you've to suffer through the training the, 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 the pain, the trials, the, your body saying, give up, you're nuts, you're crazy, you're not going to make it. You've got to suffer through that and you get to the other side and you've crossed the finish line. You finished the game. And James is saying, that's what you've got to do in your faith. You've got to get through that test. You've got to get through that trial, through the suffering to the other side. And when you get to the other side, your faith is stronger. Do you see that? Because James wants you to have strong faith. He wants your faith to be strong and active. You see, Christians have to learn endurance in our faith. We don't have to do that a lot in our country and our culture today. If something's uncomfortable, we just give up on it. We just, we just go do something else. We just drop it. We walk off. We're not used to being uncomfortable anymore and, and, and having to suffer and having to struggle and, and, and like past generations have and in other places in the world. But our faith has to be durable to make it through the things that life throws at us. So the Christians James was writing to had to learn to hold on to their faith while they were being persecuted. They had to not give up on their faith, even though everything within them and even people around them might be saying, hey, look, give up, ease up. Don't take it that seriously. It's not that important. You're, you're going too far. You may face pressure to compromise your faith on your job to get by or to get that promotion or to, to fit in and not feel awkward. And maybe you're pressured uh, uh, not to take your faith so seriously to, to ease up the way other so-called Christians do. And, and, and because others who claim they're Christians, they go and do all these things. And you hear about them talking about it at school. And, and you know, they go to church somewhere and they say they're Christians, but you know what they're doing. You know how they talk. You know what they do when they have the chance to do it. And you're thinking, well, maybe that's Maybe that's acceptable. I, I mean, at least I go to church and I believe in God and I know some stuff about the Bible. Maybe that's okay. And you feel that pressure to, to give up, to, to not hold on so strong to your faith. Or maybe tragedy and difficulty make you wonder if it's worth it. You wonder where God is when this tragedy is happening in your life, when there's loss and suffering and pain, and you wonder, God, I don't know if I can make it through this. I don't know if I can endure. And James says, hold on to your faith. You see, the Christian life does not shelter us from adversity and difficulty in life. Now, some will preach to you like that, that it does. 
But that's simply not what we see in Scripture, is it? And that's why James is writing his letter. We will face trials, but James's concern is not if we will face trials, but what? But how we will respond to those trials with our faith. Can you make it through that trial and your faith be stronger on the other end? That's what James is concerned about. Can you make it through the suffering? You see, God's Word tells us that when we hold on to our faith and make it through that test, through the pressure, and we get to the other side, we grow spiritually. That our faith is stronger. We're more mature spiritually. And he says, uh, uh, that's, that's your, your staying power. That's what that is. You've got that endurance. You've got that staying power. And now you can make it through that next trial. Why? You made it through that little trial over here. And now you thought that was a mountain. And you look back and you realize, that was a bump in the road but up ahead is something bigger and and God has got you ready for that you may not think you're ready but he's helped you get ready all along the way and he's given you a community of believers to help you along the way and then by the way you're going to see somebody who is facing that little bump in the road that you faced years ago and now you're able to go help them make it through that trial not give up on their faith as they go through that James says that that person's faith lacks nothing. What does he mean? It's, he says it's perfect and complete. In other words, he's talking about it's come to a point of maturity. Not that you ever fully reach that until you're called to heaven. But he's saying you get to this point of maturity in your faith where you realize that you can make it through anything. That's what Paul meant when he said that in Philippians 4.13. I can make it through anything. Been there, done that. As long as I'm holding on to Jesus' hand, I can make it. Then he pivots in verses 5 through 8 on the idea of lacking nothing in verse 4. And look at what he says in verse 5. If any of you lacks, he uses that word again, wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith and not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What's James trying to tell them? He's still on this idea of going through trials. He hadn't left that. But he's saying, look, if you don't know how to navigate this, you need to go talk to God about it. If you don't know how to, you're going to make it through this struggle, this trial, this pressure on your faith, you need to ask God for spiritual wisdom. And, 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 and James says, who gives to all without reproach. What does that mean? That means he's not trying to, God is not sitting up there trying to find a fault with you as a reason to not give you wisdom. He's not saying, no, not you, but I'll give it to you. That's not what God is doing. James is writing, inspired by God. He's saying, God wants you to ask him, how do I get through this? God, please give me the wisdom I need to deal with my situation. And the Bible says, God will give it to you. And he says, but when you ask, don't doubt. What does that mean? Don't pray to God. And you're praying and you're going through the formalities. You're going through the, 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 the words. You're going through the motion, the act of praying. But in here, you don't think God.
God's going to do anything for you. You ever been there? You ever gone through the motions? And in your heart, you know, I, 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 don't, I think this is too big for God. I don't know if God cares. I don't know if he's listening. I don't know if he'll help me. He might help somebody else, but I don't know if he'll help me. I, I don't know if he'll do anything for me. I don't know if he's going to help me. You ever doubt it like that? James says, when you ask for wisdom, know that God's going to give you the spiritual wisdom you need to navigate through that thing and get on the other side and be stronger. Do you see that? Now, when James, James then goes in this different direction we see in verses 9 through 11, and he starts talking about the rich and the poor. And it sounds like he's just going in different directions. Some have uh, uh, compared the book of James kind of like to a New Testament book of Proverbs. In other words, he kind of gives us these snippets and, and keeps on going, but he does have these themes that he's driving at. And right now he's, he's focused on trials and getting us through uh, trials and faith in God and your faith under pressure. So he, he, he says in verses 9 through 11, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So it seems like he's changed subjects and it seems tough to understand that. It's a little, a little uh, difficult there. It's kind of tricky. But what he's still on is making it through the trials of life. And the Christian, he's saying, who doesn't have much in this life, needs to praise God, boast in his high status with Christ. Because he may not have much here, but he's got an eternal home, salvation in heaven. And he knows he, his trust is in God because he doesn't, ha he doesn't have anything here to trust in. And his total trust and all his faith is in God and his salvation and his provisions. And he says, boast in that because that's your status. You're not, you're not poor and, and nothing like maybe the world sees you. You're, you're lifted up, exalted in Christ. And then he says to the rich brother, some think he's not writing to the brothers in Christ, but most do, and I believe that brother there is implied that he's talking to the rich and poor uh, uh, brethren among them. Elsewhere in the letter, he's going to address uh, non-Christian uh, uh, rich, and we'll see that as we study through the book. But, but next he says to the wealthy that they should boast in their low position is the meaning of humiliation there, their low position. Well, what does he mean by that? Because he's talking to Christian Wealthy people who understand, they have a Christian mindset. And they understand that it was God who blessed them with what they had. It was God who reached them in the, the lostness of their lives. It was God who reached them uh, uh, in, in their, their, their state that they were in and the sin that they were in. And He lifted them up and He's blessed them with what they have. And they understand. That their, their low position in Christ because Christ is the one that they trust in. Their trust is in God, not in their possessions. And they understand that all of this goes away soon anyway. He say, boast in that because you understand that none of this 
lasts forever. And this life is not about, as Jesus would say, the abundance of your possessions. James has put the poor Christian and the wealthy Christian on level ground. And he says it's all about being faithful to God through whatever you're going through in life. You might be going through a trial and a struggle and pressure to give up your faith. And he says to the rich person, don't you trust in your riches and your power that you have. To the poor person, you trust in God. Both of you trust in God. Put your faith in Christ to make it through what you're going through. And that brings us to our final verse in verse 12. Now, normally, we see verse 12 connected to the next section. It starts a new paragraph. But I want to finish on verse 12 because of how it connects to what James has just written and to what he's about to write. Look at what he writes in verse number 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, endures under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Do you see that? Look at at this. He's been talking about the same thing all this time. What will happen to your faith when life puts the pressure on you to give up on God? That's what he's been talking about. What's going to happen to your faith when you go through trials and struggles and strains and the pressures of life? And he says, if you stand up and endure under trials through the suffering that you're blessed by God. That makes us think of the Beatitudes. You're blessed by God. And that blessing is what God gives you on that day when he returns to call you to your heavenly home. He gives you that crown of life. Now, are you going to get a real crown? Well, that's not the point of what James is saying. What what he means by that is that crown of life is, is the fullness of all of the blessings of God in your salvation and realizing your heavenly home. That's that ultimate, finally fully realized blessing of God, that crown of eternal life. And when you stand strong, no matter what the world does or no matter what the world says to you, no matter what life throws at you, and you stand strong in your faith that God, He gives you that crown of life and you get your reward in heaven. But notice, who is it that gets the crown of life? It's the person whose motivation is right. Do you see the motivation at the very end? For those who love him. Do you see that? He's going to give that to those who love him. So what's my motivation to to endure through my trials, to endure through my suffering, to endure through the pressure on me, to give up on my faith, to grow weak in my faith? My motivation is my love for God, my heavenly Father who saved me by the sacrifice of His Son. And and I can't believe He would, I can't even fully comprehend He would do that. And, And it's because of His love for me that I love Him. And that motivates me. That motivates me to make it through whatever i got to go through because of His great love for me. Knowing that one day it'll all be over and I'll be with Him forever. That's the promise of God. Is that the way you've been living your life? Have you been living faithful to him through the trials? Maybe you haven't. 
Maybe you, you, you need the prayers of the church because you're going through some stuff or some family's going through some stuff and you need wisdom and you want the church to pray with you. Or you want the church to pray for you while you're dealing with some things. That's what we're here for. It's, it's not a bad thing to ask the church for prayers. It's a good thing because Jesus designed it that way. Maybe you're, you're, you're saying, you know what? It's 2023. It's the first day of the year. I, I'm, I'm ready to start my walk with Christ. I'm ready to put on Christ in baptism. I'm ready to do this thing. What a great way to start off the year, becoming a child of God. If we can serve you this morning, do it now. So we stand and sing.